This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Halloway, and as always, I thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. Our guest this morning is a recent guest to the university campus. Jane Olson has returned to the university as a, an alum, but she is here to talk about her lifetime of work dealing with humanitarian causes, largely with Human Rights Watch, and also as the author of a brand new book called World Citizen, Journeys of a Humanitarian that helps chronicle some of the stories that she's been able to see firsthand over a life of service to, uh, to humanitarians and humanity all around the world. Jane, how long has it been since you've been back to your alma mater? I've actually been back several times. I was here to the College of Journalism and Mass Communications about six years ago and met with students and told some of my stories. And the students interviewed me and they created a magazine um, with my photo on, on the front. The photo that they were most interested in was me standing in with the um, United Nations blue helmet standing in front of a tank on a snowy road in Bosnia. They love that photo. <laughs> that was on the cover of the magazine they did. I've always had great pride in, in being um, an alum of the University of Nebraska. You grew up in Denison, Iowa, and what was it about the concept of journalism or of storytelling that brought you to the university in the first place? I actually started working for the Denison newspapers when I was only 15. I've always loved newspapers. My parents took the Omaha World Herald and the Des Moines Register and, of course, the Denison Bulletin and Review. And the publisher of the Denison Papers was a friend of ours. And he knew that I had a passion for photography and a great uh, interest and facility for writing. I was working on the high school newspaper at the time and asked if I wanted to come in and and do some work. So I started working summers and then after school. And the, he paid me out of petty cash because it was illegal to hire someone under age 16, I think it was at the time. And I started by writing obituaries, which I took very seriously. I felt that every life deserved, um, it, I, as I said in my book, at least three paragraphs. We still teach obituaries, and people still take them very seriously here, too, I can guarantee you. Uh, what was it about growing up in the Midwest um, that led to an interest in what would then become a, a career in international storytelling? Because as you've said in a couple of occasions, um, you, you grew up in a, a very supportive household, a very supportive community, but you were now aware that there were other communities and other things going on elsewhere in the world that were not in that same cozy scenario in which you'd grown up. Well, number one, I was a great reader. I would hang out at the Carnegie Library every free minute, read lots of books. My parents believed in family vacations, and every summer we would load up a big old station wagon. They had uh, four children, and then eight years later, another boy, three girls and two boys, a large family. But we would uh, travel in different directions every summer to the southeast, um, to uh, northwest, occasionally, um, well, we would always come to Nebraska because my father, a full Dutchman, grew up in Holland, Nebraska, just south of Lincoln. We always came to uh, Holland and Firth for huge family reunions. We traveled a great deal, and I was always interested in meeting and talking to everyone I met. 
when I was 12 years old, my father had a conference or convention, actually, um, in New Orleans and invited my sister and me to go with him and my mother. And traveling down there on a, a Braniff airplane out of Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> a propeller plane, I was sick the whole way, but it was amazing to see New Orleans. I, it was like stepping into a foreign, foreign nation, a foreign culture. The Cajun talk and the, the food and the architecture was just fascinating to me. So after your graduation from, from our institution uh, in 1964, what, where, where did life take you professionally right after that? Because it wasn't necessarily an immediate leap into the Human Rights Watch kind of activities that you're best known for. No, I actually got married a week out of college. I was planning a wedding, writing my um, thesis for my investigative reporting class, doing all of my, and I was editor of the yearbook, finishing up the yearbook, and a few other crazy things. Um, I got married a week out of college and followed, went with my husband to the University of Michigan where he was in law school. After law school, he got a scholarship, um, Ford Foundation Fellowship to the University of Oxford. And he was uh, there for a full year. Um, we had a baby and I spent a lot of time walking all around campus and I wrote a column that I sent back to three or four newspapers that they published called Fempressions from Oxford. So I was always writing and always interested in seeing my byline in newspapers. So there was a move then to the West Coast, and that was uh, where you first got, as I understand it, your first taste of some international involvement. Yes, we moved to Pasadena, California in 1968 with uh, an infant and a two-year-old. I always did a lot of volunteer work, primarily um, centered around my children. I took my two blonde, blue-eyed children to Head Start classes, where they were mostly all black children. Um, and that was a fabulous experience. I really learned a lot, and Hope contributed a lot, and I learned how important it is to push a child on a swing, to hold a child on your lap and read a book to help a child learn to sit on a chair and use silverware, some of them for the first time. I'm very, very strong advocate for early childhood education, but I had a profound experience in diversity. We joined a very liberal Episcopal church in Pasadena, and I got involved in the early 80s with what was then um, a massive um, flood of refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers from Central America who were flooding into Southern California. It was during the Contras Wars, in especially Nicaragua and El Salvador, and our church became an asylum church. We took some of the families and immigrant families into our homes because just like we experienced quite recently, they were threatened. They were met with fear and anger and negative judgment, um, very little with compassion. We tried to give them that. We set up a program on Central America that I led, so I had to learn everything I could about the history and current politics and how those countries fitted into what was the overall theme of the Cold War. It was really about the U.S. 
and the Soviet Union. We had so many nuclear weapons in our in our collective arsenals that we would have destroyed the world several times over. So in order to wage war on each other, we used uh, pawns. We set up proxy wars in third world countries, and that's what was happening in Nicaragua and El Salvador. So I was asked to go with a priest and a couple other uh, members of my church down to Nicaragua to uh, do on-ground, first-hand uh, witnessing of what was actually happening there, to travel all around the country, to talk to people. We even went to our embassy, which was more like a CIA front at the time. It wasn't really, we didn't have any diplomatic relations. But um, they tried to tell us what a huge threat to our democracy and freedom this little country of Nicaragua and then El Salvador posed. I could see with my own eyes that wasn't true, and what I saw was a lot of desperately poor people who um, had experienced a massive earthquake and were trying to recover, and we blocked their application for a loan from the World Bank, from the World Bank to try to rebuild their country. I also saw people trying to make their lives better, but for women, the, the best-paying job that they could get to support their children was to be prostitutes for American soldiers who were down there. And it was pretty profound. <clears throat> we drove up on the border and saw the border with Honduras. Just across the border, um, American soldiers were training the Contras um, soldiers in, in war fighting to take on the Sandinistas who were the revolutionaries. I learned a great deal, and I learned that that was my life path, that I really wanted to go into places like this. I wanted to meet people, I wanted to be a witness, I wanted to take notes and write about my experiences, but I still had three children at home, and I needed to spend another five or six years raising my children. But I was especially interested in the Cold War and the repercussions of the um, really nasty rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And I'm not placing blame on either side, but it was a fact of life, overarching almost every other global reality at the time. So the Soviet Union started to dissolve and crumble. And the very day that our youngest child left for college, her father took her very kindly, I got on an airplane to Moscow and I spent the next, really decades, um, traveling into war-torn regions. Many of them had a connection with the Soviet Union or were formerly part of the Soviet Union. It, you have had, as you, as you said, you've been a, a, had the extraordinary opportunity to be an, an eyewitness to lots of historical situations, and some of it, you just happened to be there at the right time as key things were happening. Um, I know that you went to um, with a U.S. delegation to Ukraine in 1989. We were comparing our Ukrainian uh, blue and, and yellow uh, wear down our way into the session this, this afternoon. But uh, what did you learn about the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian people at that time? And uh, I, I had read somewhere you said that, that they thought a lot of Americans as being enemies, and I'm sure a lot of Americans thought of them as being the enemy as well. 
What does being there and meeting people firsthand, as you also did in Nicaragua and elsewhere, what does that help? How does that help you reframe what you think you know about people, and then what they then think they know about us as Americans? Well, let me give you a little backdrop here. I was invited, um, along with a couple other members of our church, which is well known nationally as a major peace and justice advocate. I was invited to join a delegation of 100 Americans with a few Europeans in the mix um, to go on a cruise down the Dnieper River with 100 Soviet citizens, primarily Ukrainians, but also quite a few Russians. And this was an initiative of the Ukrainian Peace Committee, very brave people in Ukraine who were hoping for greater freedom and democracy from the Soviet Union, from Russia. And they wanted uh, to open up their country to meet us, the enemy. The whole region from Kiev to Odessa, along the Dnieper, Dnieper River, which we're seeing a lot of in the news these days with the Russia's aggressive war against Ukraine, that whole region had been closed down for decades because it was a primary center for the production of military weapons and especially nuclear weapons. So people in those cities, in Dnipropetrovsk, Zaporosia, where we saw the major nuclear power plant, Kherson, other cities, um, had not been allowed to leave their cities and no one, even other Soviet citizens, weren't allowed to go in. They were really closed off cities. And we went down, we started in Kiev, and then went down the river, stopped at every city along the way. And I was a little nervous. It's a, quite a responsibility as a young woman in my early 40s to represent the United States to our enemy. And these were people who had been indoctrinated, you know, that we were fierce and that we ate our children or whatever they said about us. But every place we got off, we were greeted so warmly. It was with such celebration and delight. People dressed in costumes, they came out and danced, they had their children all dressed. We were given loaves of braided bread and flowers and you know, we were entertained with dances and music and you know, all of the, the beautiful um, Ukrainian traditional lutes and other stringed instruments. We were embraced and embraced with such curiosity and eagerness. Now, I had been trained at the School of Journalism in the, at the University of Nebraska to take good notes. And I carried with me everywhere a camera and a journal. I used um, stenography journals. And I wrote down everything I saw. And of course, I am from the Midwest. We talked to everybody. I mean, I always have been told by cab drivers in New York, I talk to everybody and find out where they're from. They always say to me, you're not from here, are you? I said, no, I'm from Iowa, Nebraska. <laughs> I love people. I'm always curious. I had an interpreter who stayed with me because I was always engaging. Um, and I met so many people, but I went one step further. I asked people if they would write their name and address in my journal in Cyrillic, their their language, which is a different alphabet, 
And then I would take a photo and offer a photo of, of them in native dress, costume, and whatever. And I would, I would write by, along their address, woman with green and orange bandana, child wearing, you know, whatever, so that I could identify. We made so, so many friends, and I was taken into people's homes. You know, it's, in this case, it's wonderful to be a woman because um, I, I always traveled as a mother and later as a grandmother, um, warm and nurturing and certainly not scary. So I made many, many friends, and when I went home, I wrote letters to every single person whose address I had, and I, I wrote them in English, of course, but I wrote their address on the envelope in Cyrillic, and I enclosed the photographs that I'd taken of them and a photograph of myself and often a Christmas card of my family so they could see my own children. And um, I wrote to them a couple times during that year, and then I was invited to return. And in 1990, we did a second journey to Ukraine, the same trip, but this time with a very different delegation. There were no Russians. It was all Ukrainians. I decided on the second trip to take my daughter, who was in graduate school at Johns Hopkins School of International Studies and happened to be in Europe. And I also took my brother from Seattle, who was a contractor and a musician. He played a guitar and he brought his guitar with him. And he knew all the American folk, folk songs. And that opened many doors. So we arrived and stowed our bags on the boat and we went into Independence Square in Kiev. This was in August, 1990. And we're shocked to see there were tens of thousands of people crowding Independence Square in Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. And we were told that they were going to raise their flag for the first time. So we held on to each other tightly because the crowds were just swarming and everybody was in, you know, high. I mean, it was like a Nebraska football game trying to get into the stadium, right? Everybody was trying to get closer to the platform where the speakers were and to where the flagpole was. And we saw them pull down the hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union for the first time, stomp it on the ground, and raise the yellow and blue flag of the nation of, Korea, of Ukraine for the first time. I have a lot of photos about it. I wrote a whole chapter in my book. I just happened, Rick, <laughs> by coincidence, to be wearing a yellow and blue cotton dress, the very colors of the flag. And my daughter and I were pushed to the front of the crowd. We were lifted up onto the platform and given flags. And we were there waving the flags and singing and dancing. And they were singing the Ukrainian national anthem. It was one of the pinnacle experiences of my life. So I have kept many, many friends. And through this period of this aggressive war, the brutal war that Russia has waged and continues to wage on Ukraine has just been heartbreaking. But I am receiving emails from many of my friends telling me about their personal experiences. And I've been doing social media, posting some of their letters. And um, of course, set my books over. It's been, the mail is as chaotic as everything else there, but um, I have great heart for the Ukrainian people, and they love Americans, and they appreciate our support so much. 
I wanted to ask how many you've been able to keep in touch with over the years, because I know that's not just a, something you did there. You've, you've made a lot of lasting friendships everywhere that you've been, and that's been kind of a hallmark of your writing and your work. Uh, that must be heartening to, to keep in touch with these folks. But then when you get a situation like the current situation in Ukraine, it must be heartbreaking to not only see places in the news that you know you've been, but to wonder about the fate of some of these wonderful friends that you've made. Yes. And one of the young men who's over the years, I actually brought him over to California. He spent a summer with our family. We took him up to the Sequoia National Park and all around. I mean, he's, he cried when he had to get on the plane going home. We've stayed, stayed very, very close to him. He calls me Mother Goose, and he's <laughs> one of my goslings. I have many goslings around the world. He is um, an interpreter. He worked for quite a long time at the U.S. Embassy in Russia, but he had to quit because the Russians were Force, forcing him, trying to compel him to spy for them, and he refused to do that. He has an American soul. So he quit, and he is a, a computer expert, um, English language interpreter, and he's working, um, lives in Odessa, and has a steady job. But three nights a week for most of the last year, he has been putting on camouflage uniforms and carrying a rifle, and he's out with um, fellow citizen soldiers defending the city of Odessa. Um, this is just the last couple weeks. Of course, they've been bombed severely, and the power is out, and they have no water. And I haven't been able to hear from him because he's, of course, with no power, he's not getting his um, phone charged or any internet service. Um, I'm terribly worried about him. You've said a couple of things that I really wanted to unpack a little bit. One of them is just the, the ongoing sense of curiosity that you have about the places that you've visited and how that part of that's your journalistic training again. And as you say, you strike up a conversation with everybody, which is a very useful skill I've found as well. But one of the ongoing themes that I see in so many of your stories is the critical role of the women in society. You talked about the value of being a, a woman traveler yourself. But um, you've mentioned several times in, in the stories the, the strength of the women in, in helping right. to rebuild society and keeping things going when uh, it, it looks like the, the cause might be lost. And, and there was a story that I, I heard you say about when you were in uh, the, the Soviet Union right after as the collapse was starting there about some of the women of Moscow who came out with food for the soldiers, the young soldiers who were driving in in their tanks and may not have even had any idea where they were going or what they were there for, but it was the women who provided them comfort. That was an astonishing story. It is astonishing. There is a little bit of Forrest Gump about my <laughs> the chapters in my book. I happened to be in Cuba during the storm of the century, the night I got there, the worst hurricane ever experienced. I was in Ukraine the day they tore down the Soviet flag and raised the yellow and blue flag for the first time. I was in Moscow as a public delegate for the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. The first time European, basically NATO allies, um, had held a human rights conference behind the Iron Curtain. And it was because of uh, Gorbachev's um, melting of the Cold War, the detente that we were experiencing. We planned to have the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Moscow for the first time. So I was as as a member of the delegation from Human Rights Watch, um, I was there, and at the ex exact time, 
there was a coup attempt on Gorbachev. Gorbachev was in Crimea, and some of the generals um, thought he was too passive and wanted to overthrow him, and they entered his compound in Crimea and um, took him under captivity and sent tanks, hundreds of tanks, into the Kremlin. The Kremlin, the seat of government for the Soviet Union and for Russia. While these tanks came in, many of the young men driving the tanks had never been to Moscow. Some of them came from as far away as Siberia and were flown in, and they drove the tanks from a nearby airport all the way through the streets, breaking up streets and highways and roads. Um, the the it, drivers had to stop and ask along the way, where's the Kremlin? <laughs> and so the Moscovites gave them the wrong directions. So by the time they finally got to their destination, which was the Kremlin, you know, where St. Basil's Cathedral is, that beautiful setting that is shown all the time, on, especially on May Day when they roll their weapons through there. They finally got there. They'd been driving these tanks all day long. Um, the women of Moscow got on the phone with each other and said, these boys are our sons, our brothers, um, our nephews, we need to feed them. And so they organized to take soup and, and pots of macaroni, um, which I call comfort food, and uh, drinks out to the tanks. So the women in Moscow <laughs> all show up on the Kremlin with pots of hot food and, and, and jugs of, of drinks and knocked on the tanks and said, come on out, we're your sisters, we're your, daughter, we're your mothers, we're your aunties. We'll feed you. And so these kids, they had no further directions. I think the generals that plotted the coup went to their dashas and got drunk, basically. They had no means of communication. They didn't know what they were supposed to do once they got there, and they were tired and they were hungry. So they came out of their tanks, and the women of Moscow fed them, and they joined the resistance. <laughs> That's a fabulous story, and it's one of many that you that you uh, have, have done such a great job of detailing in the new book called "World Citizen: Journeys of a Humanitarian," uh, which is one of the reasons why you're back with us uh, on your uh, home campus this week. What was it that finally prompted you to say this needs to go in a book? This needs to be something more than just uh, talking about all of these occasions on speaking engagements or things along that line. Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Rick, because um, I have done a lot of public speaking in my life, you know, as chair of, of Human Rights Watch and major humanitarian organizations. I've gone around and, and given a lot of speeches in universities, high schools, even churches, law schools. I've told many of these stories, and people always said, you should write a book. Well, about five years ago, I broke my ankle. I broke my ankle very severely, all three bones. I spent a month at Mayo Hospital um, getting <laughs> screwed back together, literally. And I spent six months basically in a wheelchair at home. And I am used to being so active. I still am so active. I thought I was going to go crazy, and I just decided that this was the time to write my book. And luckily, I had low horizontal file cabinets under the counters of my desk. And I kept 
everything. And I wheeled myself into, <laughs> into my office and I found files and I just started writing and I kind of started writing from the middle out. I spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union. I mean, in the former Yugoslavia, which was part of the Soviet Union. I was obsessed with the war of ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, the um, terrible war of aggression there. It was a land grab. It was a war targeted, targeting civilians. It was a war in which rape against women and girls was used massively as a weapon of war. I went over many times with various organizations. Um, I took lots of photographs, took lots of notes, and I kept everything in file drawers. I even had my plane tickets, and but mostly I had my journals. And you think you're gonna remember things, but I started first just reading my journals, um, kind of one trip at a time. And I was fascinated by the details that I had written down that I didn't remember, like what it smelled like, what was sitting next to a child in the corner of a room, what a refugee woman had on her thin mattress on a metal frame bunk bed, um, the, but also how I felt, a lot about how I felt and about my interactions with different women, mostly, you know, in all situations, 80% of refugees are women and children. At this point, we have more than 300 million refugees in the world, more refugees in 2022 than at any time since World War II. So this book was really, I thought, needed to be written. I wanted to put a face and a personality on the victim, on the other we're so quick to judge and dismiss people. And I met some of the most courageous, resilient people in refugee camps that I've ever met in my entire life. And I wanted to tell their stories. When I had a chance to, to teach in Africa several years ago, one of the, the uh, women in my class that I met with uh, mentioned a, an African phrase that I have just it seared into my memory and used it on many occasions, which is when elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. Mm -hmm. And it's the it's the people, like you've just talked about, the refugees, primarily women and children, who are the ones who are doing the suffering while the leaders, as you say, sit back in their, in their comfy villas right. and, and don't have to worry about that. Uh, you've got several books in the chapter, or several chapters of the book, rather, that talk about uh, your time in Bosnia, and you met some incredible women there. Tell us about the woman you met who founded the Society of Women Survivors of War Crimes. How much time do you have? That's my favorite story. <laughs> it's a fascinating story. Well, this was in central Bosnia. As I said, I'd been over there many times. This was my fifth or sixth trip. I was traveling with World Vision, which is a Christian-based uh, humanitarian organization that had adopted this particular city. As the war progressed, um, the Bosnian Muslims, who were the primary victims, and these are people that were ethnically Muslim but had never really practiced their religion. No one practiced religion behind the Iron Curtain. It wasn't allowed. But they were descendants of the Ottoman Empire, basically. And they were um, in primarily Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is between Serbia and Croatia. The Serbs were the primary aggressors, but in the end, they were all fighting each other, as war happens to um, 
dissolve alliances. It, everyone was fighting everyone. The remaining Muslim people from Bosnia who had not been able to cross the borders and leave, as they had done by the tens of thousands, were pushed into the center part of Bosnia. And we went into a town um, called Funicha, where there were a town that had pro probably been the size of Denison, Iowa, 5,000 people, now had more than 50,000 refugees, and they were primarily women and children living in every kind of makeshift shelter you can imagine in a cold climate. This was late October. We were told that there was a particular um, woman that they wanted me to meet. So I went to um, this very, like a concrete block little building that um, nondescript had probably been part of a resort at some time. Um, and I met a woman named Mency. She was um, in her 30s, um, well-dressed and groomed. And she, of course, there are many incidences of where I'm served tea. <laughs> Every place I went, I was served tea. And we sat uh, with an interpreter, and I asked Mency to tell me her personal story. And it started the way I'd heard so, so many girls and women tell their story. The Serbs surrounded their village, which was primarily, it was um, on the eastern side of Bosnia, not far from Srebrenica where that massacre happened, that massacre where tens of thousands of men and boys were killed. The Serbs surrounded her village and were shelling day and night, and then they came down into the village, and village meaning a small town, and they made everyone come out of their houses onto the streets. They shot and killed all the men and teenage boys, just killed them. Loaded and then burned the houses. Loaded the women and girls, especially the younger girls and teenage girls and young women, onto trucks and carried them. Mency said she didn't know how many hours where they had gone because it was at night and they ended up at a schoolhouse, and they crowded um, the attractive young women and girls into classrooms where they were so densely crowded that they couldn't even lie down. Only two at a time could lie down. And day and night, the Serb militia would come and take girls out and rape them, often gang rape them. And she said that the... Um, the soldiers were told, were ordered at gunpoint to rape. And she said there, there was also other kinds of torture, cigarette burns, choking, you know, various kinds of threats. But mainly it was um, rape as a weapon of war. She said eventually uh, some Bosnian men came and rescued them and drove them to this town of Phoenicia. And she said she was just destroyed. She said she curled up in a ball and she had lost all sense of who she was or what her history was or past was. Um, her husband had been killed, her father had been killed, their house had been burned. But she said all of these teenage girls 
were being brought in also, and they had also been held in rape camps, and she realized that they were hurting worse than she. She at least had experienced a loving husband and had had a child. So she gathered other women of her age and said, we need to help the teenage girls. She said they are, they are not in their bodies. They are not going to survive. They wouldn't even look at anybody. They wouldn't look at each other. They wouldn't eat. So they set up a beauty shop and they did massages for them and they did uh, hair treatments and you know basically just got them back into feeling their bodies and um, got them over that suicide stage. There was among this group of women a rather sophisticated woman who was actually a Serbian woman who had been a fashion designer in Sarajevo. She managed to escape Sarajevo before the Thousand Day Siege set in. And she suggested that they needed to teach the girls something to do with their time. And she said, I can teach them how to sew. I can teach them how to, how to um, make patterns and layout patterns. The reason she suggested that is because this town of Funicia had been a center of garment making for all of Yugoslavia. There was a big garment factory in the, in the center of town, and that's where most of the people had worked, had been employed. The factory itself had been bombed and burned out, but there were um, there were a significant number of sewing machines, industrial quality sewing machines that could be rescued from the rubble and the ash. And the refugee men in the camp helped to do that, helped to clean them up, set them up, get them oiled, and get them operating. And they found shears, scissors, and even zippers, things that didn't burn, they found in the ash. There was one problem, they didn't have any fabric because all the fabric had been burned. But um, Mency said they came up with the idea one thing they had in great quantity was burlap bags. The United Nations food program had brought huge burlap bags filled with potatoes and rice and um, other staples. And the empty bags were then stacked. So the women washed all of those bags and softened the fabrics. And then Dragna, who was the um, fashion designer, cut patterns and taught the girls how to, how to cut them out, lay them out, cut them, and, and sew them. And that night, I was given a fashion show with these teenage girls who had been so abused and battered and you know ready to commit suicide, wearing these amazing, I mean, really beautifully designed fabrics, clothing, skirts and jackets and jumpers and um, just beautiful and and they they gave us a fashion show like they were you know pirouetting and like they were you know part of the New York fashion scene with so much pride and so much joy and hope and hope I mean the resilience it gave them something to also taught them a skill kept them busy. You came home with a couple of items. I came home with quite a few. I actually <laughs> brought a few to Lincoln. I may show later at a party. But I think um, I think just hearing stories like that does tell you that, um, you know, Mency made an enormous difference. 
But the important thing about the work that she did there with the girls and women is she created a society. She created a community. And it was called the Society for Women Survivors of War Crimes. Every member who joined the society had to pledge not to hate or seek revenge and to teach their children never to hate or seek revenge against those who'd abused them because she said only in this way will the hatred and fighting and war end. We must forgive. Forgiveness was so important. And at the time, she had 800 members. Transformative for generations. And as a journalist yourself, you know how much words matter. She chose specifically to say survivors, not victims. She said we will never use the word victim because if we consider ourselves to be victims, then we will have lost. We are survivors. It's an amazing book of stories. If you were able to, I know that's a cliched question, but if you were able to have a conversation with teenage you and Dennis in Iowa, knowing what you know now about the world, what would you, what advice would you give to a budding young journalist growing up in Western Iowa? Keep your heart wide open. Practice kindness. Be observant. Understand that every human being has value, that we're really all connected, and understand that one person can indeed make a difference. Well, you have certainly done that over a lifetime of service and humanitarian effort. Jane, thank you so much. We could go for four or five hours here, and there's a lot I didn't even get a chance to get to, but we appreciate you being with us today. Welcome back to your alma mater. Thank you so much. Our guest on Campus Voices, Jane Olson, who had a long career with the Human Rights Watch. Uh, She, among other things, chaired the International Board of Trustees for Human Rights Watch, but she was also involved in landmine survivors as a board member of the Pacific Council on International Policy, a lifetime spent in service to others, and we appreciate her time on Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I appreciate your time as well on this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln. Lincoln.